we ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we would behold wonderful things from your law, from your word, for your glory, and for our sanctification. We pray all these things in the name of your Son, Christ, and through your Spirit. Amen. Second Samuel chapter 9. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul, whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul, that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodebar. Then king David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodebar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for such a dead dog as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth your master's grandson shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks Thanks be to God. God. You may be seated. When people hear that I used to be a teacher before I joined the army, the usual next question is, what did you teach? And then... When I tell them that I taught middle and high school English, history, and Bible, they usually go on to tell me about which one of those three subjects they really liked or really didn't like. Now, the most common really didn't like subject is English, which makes me very sad. But the most common really did like subject is history, which makes me happy because I also like history, but also makes me a little bit nervous because often the next thing that they do is they tell me about which era of history is their favorite, and it is often one uh, about which I don't know as much as I should, American history. I say it to my shame. The conversation usually goes something like this. They say, oh, I love history. What do you think about this specific and, to me, obscure part of colonial history or the Civil War or World War II? And I have to say... Ooh, actually, I taught ancient and medieval history, and I don't really know as much about American history as I should. And then they look at me with some mixture of confusion, disbelief, and maybe contempt. 
Well, my favorite period of history, era of history to teach was ancient history, and it's still my favorite period of history to read about. I was privileged to be able to teach the histories, which is a book written by a Greek man named Herodotus. He is often referred to as either the father of history or the father of lies, depending on who you read. This book, The Histories, tells about the Greco-Persian Wars. You'll probably be familiar with the most famous battle of those wars, the Battle of Thermopylae. But The Histories goes into heroic and often very confusing detail about not only the war, but what led up to the war. And there are so many just wild stories in the histories. My personal favorite is the story of what Xerxes, who was then king of Persia, did when he was trying to march his enormous army, maybe as much as a million men, plus all the camp followers, from Persia to Greece. Now, if you know your geography, you know that there's a problem for Xerxes. It's water. Back then, it was called the Hellespont. More recently, it's referred to as the Dardanelles. It's the strait between Persia and Greece, and it's massive. It's between three-quarters of a mile wide and three miles wide. So Xerxes, confronted with this problem, or more probably his engineers, came up with a, a brilliant solution. They would make a bridge of boats. So they sailed all these boats next to each other, tied them off, put planks down, and then they would just march their army across. That's pretty smart, right? Unfortunately for Xerxes, there was a storm. I'm going to read you an extended quote because it's so good. Uh, This is from section 7 in the histories. But no sooner had the strait been bridged than a great storm swept down, breaking and scattering everything. When Xerxes heard of this, he was very angry and commanded that the Hellespont, remember that's the body of water, the Hellespont be whipped with 300 lashes and a pair of fetters or chains be thrown into the sea. I have even heard that he sent branders with them to brand the Hellespont. He commanded them while they whipped to utter words outlandish and barbaric. Bitter water, our master thus punishes you because you did him wrong, though he had done you none. Xerxes the king will pass over you, whether you want it or not. In accordance with justice, no one offers you sacrifice, for you are a turbid and briny river. He commanded that the sea receive these punishments and that the overseers of the bridge over the Hellespont be beheaded. How good is that? You don't get that story, that kind of story, anywhere else except ancient history. Well, one thing that you'll notice if you read enough ancient history is that it is almost always violent, and it seems excessively so to us modern enlightened people. And this ancient violence is seen most clearly, perhaps, when when a, a new ruler comes to power or there is an attempted rebellion. You see this in the histories. There's the story of a man named Polycrates. He was a Greek who came to power with his two brothers, and they each ruled over uh, their own kingdom. But this was not enough power for Polycrates, so he killed one of his brothers and exiled the other. You see this in the history of the Mongols. Uh, Genghis Khan's sons and grandsons kill each other and many members of their family for power. You see it in Roman history, in the purges of Marius and Sulla during the Republican period, as well as the purges during the so-called Second Triumvirate of Caesar Augustus. A Roman senator named Crassus once put down a revolt. Uh, He he exacted a a terrible vengeance on this revolt. There's a man named Spartacus 
whom you've probably heard that name before. There's a movie titled that. He was a, a gladiator, and he raised an army of gladiators, and they rebelled against Rome. Well, Crassus uh, raised an army to fight Spartacus. He defeated him and took 6,000 prisoners. And instead of letting these men go or putting them into slavery or even just killing them right there, he crucified every single one along the Via Appia, which is the main, route, main road to Rome at that point. Just imagine 6,000 crosses along 120 miles of road. You even see this in the Bible. Just a few months ago, Pastor Mock preached about Abimelech. He killed all of his brothers to gain, and he hoped, hold power. Remember, Abimelech had 70 brothers. Why this incredible brutality when there were changes or attempted changes of power? Well, if we're thinking according to the world, that's the logical thing to do. If you are a new ruler and there are people around you who are threats to that new rule, why would you let them hang around and possibly uh, take you down? It just makes sense to kill them. Uh, Dale Ralph Davis, in his commentary on 1 Samuel, says this, When a new regime or dynasty came to power, the name of the game was Purge. The new king always needed to solidify his position. It was conventional political policy, solidification by liquidation. Everybody knew it. Everybody believed it. Everybody practiced it. Well, our text, as we read, is the story of a ruler new come to power. He asks for and is presented with the grandson of the previous ruler, a man who tried many times to kill him. And if you're thinking like the world, if you're following the logic of the world, it makes sense for this new ruler to kill this last remnant of the house of his former antagonist, to remove the last vestige of the previous regime, lest it fester and overthrow him. But he doesn't do that, does he? Instead of following the logic of the world and killing this man, Mephibosheth, David brings him into his family, gives him a seat at his table forever, and all because of a covenant that he made with Mephibosheth's father, Jonathan. Although this is a great story, and it is great, it's, it's miraculous, it is just a picture, it is a foretaste, it is a dim shadow of how our covenant Lord brings spiritual traitors into his family gives them a seat at his table and his spirit forever, and all because of a covenant that he made with his father. Let's look at the the structure of chapter 9 of 2 Samuel a little more in depth to see why David's actions towards Mephibosheth are so unusual according to the world, and yet, at the same time, why they are only a dim shadow of our covenant Lord's actions towards us. First, who was Mephibosheth? We first meet him in 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4, but chapter 9 gives us three specific details upon which I want to focus. The first thing we want to look at is uh, pointed out to us in verse 1. It says that he was of the house of Saul. Again, Saul was, for most of his and David's life together, antagonistic towards David. And this isn't just uh, a general, oh, I don't like that guy, I'm going to stay away from him, whatever. No, Saul tried many times to kill him with his own hand and with the army of Israel. So you would think the natural tendency for David would be to be hostile towards any member of Saul's house based on Saul's treatment of him. 
But beyond that, Mephibosheth represents the old regime. Earthly logic would call David foolish, perhaps even irresponsible, if he let Mephibosheth uh, stay alive, or at least did not exile him. And certainly, Mephibosheth understood this, right? What does he do when he is brought into David's presence? Verse 6 tells us that he fell on his face. In homage, yes, but almost certainly also in fear. He was no dullard. He knew what was likely to happen next. Condemnation, exile, death. The second thing we see about Mephibosheth is his unworthiness. Verse 3 points out that Mephibosheth was crippled in his feet, and that is repeated often throughout this chapter. The chapter ends with Mephibosheth's lameness. Chapter 4, verse 4, tells the story of how Mephibosheth became lame, and it's a tragic story. But this lameness of Mephibosheth, his, that he was crippled in his feet, puts to rest any notion that David's loving kindness to him was based on merit or worth. Mephibosheth uh, could not earn David's kindness. And in an era before the blessings of technology that can help alleviate some of the suffering of disabilities, Mephibosheth had nothing to offer David in repayment for his kindness. He could not work uh, in David's army. He couldn't work the fields. He could not pay David back for his kindness. We also see in verse, uh, in verse six, where Mephib- excuse me, in verse four, where Mephibosheth is living. It says he was living in low debar. That means no pasture. So Mephibosheth is not only physically unable to pay David back for his kindness. He is even physically unable to provide himself with the means for food for himself. He can't even feed himself. And Mephibosheth, in in verse 8, describes himself as a dead dog before David. Well, verse 13 shows the results of David's loving kindness to Mephibosheth. He ate always at the king's table. Mephibosheth received the blessings of David's covenant love without earning it, without meriting it, and without paying it back. Third, and most importantly, verse 3 tells us that Mephibosheth was the son of Jonathan. Why is that important? 1 Samuel chapter 20, verses 14 through 17, tell us the story of the covenant between Jonathan and David, the covenant upon which David's unexpected and miraculous treatment of Mephibosheth was based. Jonathan says, If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. This covenant between David and Jonathan extends to life, Jonathan's and his progenies. David certainly fulfills that. He doesn't kill Mephibosheth. And that's amazing enough, that's miraculous enough, considering what we know about how these uh, changes of power usually went in the ancient world. But he didn't just spare Mephibosheth's life. He also gave him status, provision, and protection. Why? Is it because David is such a nice guy? Is this story about David's kindness? One commentator says this of Second Samuel in general, the whole book, says this book Second Samuel is not about David. It is not even about covenant kings. It is about a covenant God who makes covenant promises to a covenant king through whom he will preserve his covenant people. 
David's kindness, his chesed, towards Mephibosheth is not ultimately based on David, like his own character or his own kindness, for example. It's based on a covenant that David made with Mephibosheth's father, Jonathan. And that covenant between David and Jonathan was only possible because of the covenant that God made with David. And that covenant itself was only a particular administration of the covenant of grace, which itself was based on the Pactum Salutis, an intra-Trinitarian covenant made before the foundation of the world. Earlier, I called this particular covenant story a foretaste or a dim shadow of a far greater story. Let us look at that story now and see the parallels. We know that David was a godly king, obviously not entirely. We know David's life. So I'll ask you a question. Of whom is David a type? This is not a rhetorical question. I can. Excuse me. Of whom is David a type in the Bible? Christ, yes. Jesus, the Lord Jesus. So David is, or excuse me, Jesus is the greater David. Well, in this story, Mephibosheth is also a type. Of whom is Mephibosheth a type? Us, believers, exactly. If Jesus is the greater David, then we are the greater Mephibosheth. And I don't mean greater in the sense of better. In most senses, I mean greater in the sense of worse. And we'll see that. Earlier, we looked at three things about Mephibosheth, two negatives and one positive, which outweighed every negative. Let's look at those same things, heredity, merit, and covenant, when it comes to believers. The first thing we learned about Mephibosheth, the negative, the knock on Mephibosheth, was his heredity. He was a son or a descendant of Saul, the previous ruler, who, as we said many times, tried to take David's life. What is our heredity? Obviously, we all have our own earthly parents, and particularly on this day, we think about our fathers. But that's not what I mean. To illustrate what I mean, I want to take a look at some difficult words of Jesus, our covenant Lord, to the unbelieving Jews with whom he was conversing. In John chapter 8, verse 38, Jesus tells them, I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They respond, somewhat predictably, by saying that Abraham is their father. Just a a small aside, um, time and time again in John's gospel, we see Jesus teaching spiritual realities, and the people he's speaking to misinterpret them as earthly things. They think Jesus is speaking of earthly things when he's really speaking about spiritual realities. A famous example of that is in chapter 3 when Jesus is uh, talking with Nicodemus. But here in chapter 8, Jesus is speaking about his father, And he is comparing his father with the Jews' spiritual father. But they're thinking about earthly fathers. And so they take offense at what they probably saw as Jesus insulting Abraham. Well, the reveal comes in verse 34. Jesus says, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, and he, for he is a liar and the father of lies. There's a little bit of uh, redemption for poor Herodotus. He's not the real father of lies, although he may have lied some in his histories. But this is quite a statement. 
We might be tempted when we're reading this to yell burn after that, right? Uh, But that would be to miss the significance of that statement for us. Jesus was not just making a statement for those particular Jews, unbelieving Jews that he was speaking to. He was making a statement that applies to every single unbeliever and one that used to apply to every believer. If you are not in Christ, if you are not united to Christ, then Satan is your true spiritual father. And if you are united to Christ, then Satan was your father. Surely having Satan as your father is a worse heredity than having Saul as your grandfather. Saul tried to kill David many times, but Satan aims at deicide, killing God. And the truth is, without a regenerate heart, we aim at the same thing. Every sin has deicide as its ultimate goal. We reject God's law, thinking that our desires, our laws, are primary. When we sin, we make ourselves the lawgiver. What should Jesus, the King of kings, do with such spiritual rebels and traitors as we are? The second negative thing about Mephibosheth that we discussed was his lameness. He had nothing to offer David, nothing by which he could earn David's favor. He was a dead dog in David's sight. What is our condition? Are we good enough to earn God's kindness to us? Are we good enough to pay God back for his kindness to us? We know the answer to that question, but let us hear what the word of God has to say briefly. Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Romans 1, 29 through 32 says, They, that is humanity, were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We could go on, but what is the theological term that sums up man's inability to merit salvation? Starts with a T. Yes, <laughs> sorry. What's the term that we use uh, to to describe man's inability to earn salvation or to save ourselves? Total depravity. Yes, and to to clarify again, that doesn't mean that every person is as bad as they could be. Thank God for his common grace and the restraining power of the law. But that every aspect of an unregenerate person's being, their body, soul, and mind, is tainted by sin in, such, in some way. Surely we have nothing by which we could earn God's grace and nothing with which we can repay him for that grace. Why would the Lord Jesus do what he did? Incarnation, perfect life, sinless death, glorious resurrection, ascension, an active session at the right hand of God for such wretched men and women as we are? Well, the answer is that uh, it comes in the parallel between the last thing that we learned about Mephibosheth, which concerned the covenant. David showed chesed, which means covenant kindness, loving kindness, steadfast love, to Mephibosheth because of the covenant that David had made with Jonathan. 
We also spoke about the grounding of that covenant. It didn't start with David. It started with the triune God before time began. And here we find the one positive thing about God's children that outweighs all negatives. Before time began, God the Father elected miserable sinners, his enemies, in fact, to be saved by the atoning death of Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, and to be indwelt by the very Holy Spirit. Yes, believers were all sons and daughters of Satan. We were all seeking to dethrone the triune God and set ourselves up as almighty. No, we did not bring anything of our own with which we could merit or earn this mighty salvation. We lived in the spiritual low debar and could not feed ourselves with any spiritual good. Think back to Romans 5 that we read earlier. We were saved while we were still weak, while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies. Yet despite all this, God the Father determined to save us. The King of Kings paid the ultimate price on our behalf. The Holy Spirit was poured out upon us and lives in our very souls. Mephibosheth was granted a seat at David's table forever. How providential is it that we get to celebrate the Lord's Supper at his table together tonight? And yet, as glorious as the Lord's Supper is here on earth, thank God that communion itself is but a dim foretaste of the marriage supper of the Lamb to which those united to Christ are invited in the New Jerusalem. Well, this all puts two things into perspective, our sin and our salvation. First, we see what our sin really is. I think sometimes Christians think or talk about sin in the same way that we uh, think or talk about when our toddlers do something cheeky. We think, oh, that's just how he is. Oh, she'll grow out of it. Oh, I know I'm not supposed to do that, but it's okay. It didn't hurt anybody. I want you to imagine, if you will, a fictitious chapter in 2 Samuel. It comes sometime after chapter 9. And in this fictitious chapter, imagine that Mephibosheth, who has been saved by David, who has been blessed beyond comprehension by King David, decides to rebel against him, tries to kill him like his grandfather Saul did, and tries to wear the crown of the king. What would you think of Mephibosheth if that happened? I think I would see him as one of the most wicked men in the Bible, a book full of wicked men. Imagine the ingratitude. Imagine the hatred of David, the man who showed him so much kindness. Imagine the stupidity to think that he, Mephibosheth, who owed his life and sustenance to David, could overthrow the man appointed by God. And yet, surely, this is a picture of believers. We have been saved in spite of our heredity, in spite of our unworthiness, in spite of our enmity with God. How do we respond to God's covenant love towards us? We continue to rebel. We continue to try and dethrone God and set ourselves up as the lawgiver. This is not cheekiness. This is not a phase. This is treason. And in this church, we have lots of current and former military members. Treason is a big deal. Treason against your country. But this is worse than that. This is treason against Almighty God. May the Holy Spirit continue to show us the heinousness of our sin. But, praise the God from whom all blessings flow, this leads us to see what our salvation truly is. Go back to that fictitious chapter in 2 Samuel. 
Mephibosheth has been saved by David, rebels against David, and David, you know, puts down the rebellion, and Mephibosheth is standing before David. What would we expect David's response to be to this rebellious Mephibosheth? Surely he would not be bound by the covenant with Jonathan anymore. Surely he wouldn't continue to be gracious to him. Surely he would put him down for his treason. And yet, miraculously, that is not how our great, holy, and merciful triune God deals with us. He hates our sin, he abominates it, and yet he continues to forgive us. He teaches us to see our sin for what it really is and gives us his Holy Spirit so that we can do battle against it. He gives us the desire and the ability through his Spirit to put it to death, to mortify it. He gives us his very words and teaches us to hide it in our hearts so that we can do this. He takes spiritual traitors and keeps us in his family. Let us give praise, honor, and glory to the great King of Kings. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Let us pray. Our great, holy, and merciful triune God, we come to you aware of our sin, aware of our unworthiness, aware of who we were before you saved us. And we are aware that we often continue to rebel against you and against your kindness. We ask for continued insight into the evil of our sin so that we can continue to see more clearly how you have saved us and how you keep us. We thank you, Father, that you sent your Son to die on our behalf while we were still your enemies, that you made us sons and daughters of the Almighty God, brothers and sisters of the Lord Jesus, and indwelt by your Holy Spirit. Pray that you would continue to make us more and more like your Son Christ, for your glory, the expansion of your kingdom, and the good of your people. We pray all these things in his name and through your Spirit. Amen.